Vet. It's Y-V-E-T-T-E McGee Brown. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, born and raised. I was a Columbus City Schools kid, grew up on the near east side of Columbus. Um, my mom was 18 when I was born and I have two younger brothers. Oh, wow. So what high school did you go to? Mifflin High School. Mifflin, okay. Um, while in high school, what got you interested in the law school? Was it while you were in high school or were you in college when you first got interest, like interested into the legal field? So, you know, it's interesting. I came from really humble beginnings. Like uh, my mom was a teenager. She had three kids, three different fathers. None of them provided support. She worked factory jobs, did uh, janitorial work, anything to help support us. So when I was in high school, it was really a guidance counselor who even suggested I should go to college. I didn't even like have that necessarily in my radar. And she encouraged me to go to college, sent home financial aid information, talked to my mom. And then when I was in college, this phenomenal black woman, which is what I say to people all the time, you never know the impact you're going to have on somebody. My advisor my freshman year was this older white guy who didn't really take much interest in me. I was a journalism major because when I went, you had to declare a major and I was on the school newspaper. And so my second year, I get this black woman who had just moved to Athens, Ohio with her three daughters. She had her own syndicated column in the LA Times. And she's the person who told me to go to law school with Sandra Haggerty. Um, she asked me, she's like, what is it you're gonna do with this career? And I said, well, you know, I think I wanna go to Washington and be like a press secretary on the Hill. And she said, well, if you're gonna go to Washington, you should be a lawyer. And that's how it started. Okay, well, while you were, what was your process in life in law school like? Like once you um, graduated from undergrad and you applied, I know that you went to the Ohio State Law School. Yes. So what was your what was your time like in law school? So um, <laughs> law school was pretty terrifying for me. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I wanted to go to Georgetown and they wouldn't give me any money and Ohio State gave me a full ride. And I can remember on the first day of law school, the dean um, said at our convocation, he said, look to your left, look to your right. One of you will not be here at the end of the year. I was like, whoa, he must be talking about me. So it made me uh, terrified that I might not have what it takes to do law school. But I always believe that fear can either motivate you or paralyze you. For me, it motivated me. And so I just worked really hard. One of my law school classmates who introduced me some years ago at an event said, Yvette treated law school like an inconvenience. <laughs> and I'm glad it came off that way. I mean, I had some goals I wanted to get to, but when I went to law school, like I didn't hang out in the Balsa Lounge. In between classes, I was in the library studying. You know, I worked my second and third years. So for me, it was about I needed to get through law school. I needed to do well so I could get a job. And I was just kind of focused. But really, I was like that duck. I was pedaling fast under the water um, and maybe having a calm exterior on top. <laughs> That's good, though. That's amazing. Um, what would you say has been your, you know, your biggest accomplishment while in law school? Um, 
While in law school, I was um, I was awarded the Joseph M. Harder Award for getting the highest grade in trial advocacy. So um, I was amazing. a cash award that I received at graduation. But yeah, that was uh, a huge accomplishment. I didn't even know it was a surprise. But for getting the highest grade in trial advocacy, I was awarded uh, that cash prize. That's amazing. So to the nitty gritty, what made you want to become a part of the Ohio Supreme Court? By this time, you had been in the legal field for um, for some years now. You have not only gotten you were on the you were on the ground running. You have been doing so many amazing things. Like, how did you get the Ohio Supreme Court buzz or bugs, I should say? Well, I would say to you, and especially for someone who's about to start on this legal journey, is that what you think you're going to do with your career is very different than what you end up doing. So <laughs> I, I always say to young people, like, you have to be open to opportunities. Like, when I got out of law school, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. That I loved being in the courtroom. I loved that sense of direct justice because I worked in the prosecutor's office during law school, and there's nothing like that immediate impact of helping people who have had something horrific happen in their life or, on the other hand, providing justice for people who may be wrongly accused or who don't have a great lawyer. So I wanted to be a litigator. I started off at the attorney general's office. Then I was a trial court judge. I was a juvenile court judge for nine years. And I, when I got elected to that court in Franklin County, I was the first black woman to be elected to the common police court here. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my career. But after probably eight years, I started feeling like I was standing in the ocean with a teaspoon. Like I knew I helped the kids on my court, but I just wasn't feeling like I was having the kind of systemic impact I needed to have to keep that pipeline, as Marion Wright Edelman says, keep that pipeline from going from the crib to prison, right? There just needed to be more. So I literally stepped away from the law for a period. Like I left the bench. I resigned during the middle of my second term. I said retired. Um, and I went over to Nationwide Children's Hospital. And with their um, resources and a lot of leadership, we created the, the, the Center for Child and Family Advocacy, which is a, a multidisciplinary center for children who are sexually abused or seriously physically abused. Because my goal was, I'm standing in this ocean with all of these kids coming at me like a wave. And it was so difficult to get those kids, once they'd been through this traumatic event, to understand that they weren't victims, they were survivors. And so the center was this multi, is a multidisciplinary effort where we put police, prosecutors, children's services, physicians, therapists, all in one location so that that child gets the medical treatment they need, but they also get the mental health treatment they need. So then they can move forward, not being seeing themselves as victims, but just like somebody who's in a horrific car accident, something terrible happened to you, but you can move forward from it. Um, and so, and that, believe me, that's not to equate a car accident with being sexually abused, but it's simply to say that terrible things happen in our lives and you do need to find a way to use that for strength to move forward. So right. I thought I was out of the legal field. I was like, I had the center, we built it, we raised $10 million to build it. Um, mm. And then the governor called and um, <laughs> asked me if I would be his <laughs> Lieutenant Governor running mate for a second term, Governor Strickland. And I was like, oh, I never thought about doing that. But 
that would be a chance to have a great impact on the entire state. So I said yes. And that was in 2010 when you may recall, you were probably too young for this, but President Obama said we got a shellacking. Democrats got a shellacking in 2010. I think just about every Democratic governor on the ballot got defeated that year. And so mm-hmm. after that, the it was literally the head of the Black Caucus, Sandra Williams, called me and said, we want to tell the governor to nominate you to the Supreme Court. I was like, whoa, hold on. I don't know that I want to do that. And she's like, it's too late. We've told the governor you need to be on the Supreme Court. And the governor talked to me about it. And I talked to some friends and colleagues and I decided it would be another way to serve. So that's why I did. I wouldn't say it was a bug. I would say that it was an opportunity to make a difference, which is how I've always led my life. Mm. Okay, that's amazing. Next question is, what was the most difficult task while being on the Supreme Court? Um, I, I wouldn't say there was any difficult task. I think that um, there were frustrations for sure, right? Because there's seven mm-hmm. people and you have to convince at least three other people to see the world the way you do. But look, you know, my mom worked two jobs standing on her feet 16 hours a day. Nothing I did at the Supreme Court was difficult. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I think that I used my voice. I had a position of, of power and influence. And there were times where I was able to make what I thought was the right thing happen for the people who had cases in front of us. I didn't always win in that regard. There's lots of times I was in the dissent. But to be in that position, to be the first black woman on the Ohio Supreme Court, to know that I was part of just moving that court forward, I don't know that I can say any of it was difficult. It was challenging and good work should always be challenging. Okay. Opposite of that, what was your biggest accomplishment while being on the Supreme Court or just your biggest legal accomplishment in general? Mm. My biggest legal accomplishment? I would say um, I have probably three. So my biggest legal accomplishment actually would have to be being appointed to the Ohio Supreme Court and being able to sit in that room, right? I never saw myself as an appellate lawyer. Um, It's just not something that people that look like me think, oh, one day I'm going to sit on the highest court in the state. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that uh, Justice Brown Jackson on the U.S. Supreme Court probably felt that way. Nothing in my background. When I was born in 1960 to a teenage mother who was poor and unemployed with an absent father, nobody would have written my biography. There's no social scientist that would have said that this little black baby born in inner city Columbus to this poor teenage mother is going to one day sit on the Ohio Supreme Court. So I have Mm -hmm. to say for the sacrifice of my mother and my grandmother and really the people of this state, that is my most significant legal contribution. Because for so many people, I remember the day I got sworn in, For those people who had marched and been beaten and fought, I mean, all of their hopes and dreams are projected in various moments. And I felt like I was part of that moment. I felt like I was part of fulfilling that legacy. Mm, Thank you for that. My next question is, while being in the legal field, why should Black women in the legal field or Black women in any career build their own table? Oh, I love that. For this reason, look, 
The one thing I always say about like the vice president or President Obama or any number of really an Oprah Winfrey, a Katenji Brown Jackson, they played the game on the terms that were there, right? They they got their education. They built their companies. Oprah Winfrey did something that was unheard of when she started in the talk show business is she demanded to own her company, which put her in a really different position than a Phil Donahue who was working for somebody. So part of it is you've got to learn the rules of the game. And it's important that you build your table so that you understand you've got to have the educational and the intellectual acumen to pursue things. You've got to work hard so nobody can deny that you deserve a seat at the table. And and when you are denied a seat at the table, that's when you start to build your own. Everybody's pathway is going to look different. If you have one door closed on you, that's just one door. You've got to always hold on to your own counsel, build a close group of advisors around you that you respect. But it's important that in this moment, in this time, that we be the people driving an agenda that serves our families, our children, and ourselves. And the way to do that is to never lose confidence, Olivia. I see so many, not just black women, black, brown, white women who always feel like that imposter syndrome, like they don't belong there. Let me tell you something. Part of life, 90% of life is just showing up. It's just showing up and being able to learn what you need to learn. I say to law students all the time, the difference between the top part of the class, the top 10% and the top 25% are generally half of percentage points. That doesn't mean you're not smart. It doesn't mean you don't have intellectual acumen. It just means there's a half a percentage point separating you. Go out there and get yours. And when you get a job, be excellent at it and look for the opportunities that will come your way. Thank you. Okay, my next, my last two questions. How do you show for yourself in spaces that don't always include Black women? Mm. So, and I, I know I'm, I'm going to say this because I, I know I'm probably old school. Um, <laughs> and my kids tell me this all the time. When I show up, when I show up in spaces that people don't expect me to show up in, I make sure that it is unmistakable that I belong there. I am dressed like the people in that room are dressed. I present myself as a professional. My hair is one color. It is. It looks like I should be in that boardroom. Um, and I speak and talk to them in the way that they would expect, right? And I know that's not always popular, but for me, people can't, if people are distracted, you know, if you've got four holes in your ears or you're wearing green nail polish or whatever, people get distracted. They're not listening to you. They're just looking at you. I always mm -hmm. say, remove the distractions, walk into the room knowing you're well-prepared and obviously the best prepared in that room and make sure that you deliver. There is nothing like preparation for any meeting that you walk into. Mm -hmm. Okay. What would you say to young Black professionals that want to go into the legal field? What I would say to you is to know why you want to go into the legal field. I don't think you should go into any field that requires you to incur substantial debt that you can never pay off. It's a conversation I have with young people all the time. I had a young woman who was a teenage mom who said, 
her dream was always to be a lawyer. Okay, I get that, but now you have a six-year-old and it's gonna cost you $250,000 to go to law school. Your six-year-old right. has a right to go to college too, right? So what I would say mm -hmm. to you is you gotta be smart. And if you wanna go to law school, one, know why you're going, know the kind of job you want when you graduate. Because if your job is to go to law school so you can be a public defender and you take out $250,000 in loans, that math doesn't work. You're gonna be paying for a house you never get to live in. You know what I mean? Mm. So if you wanna go to law school, find somebody that's gonna give you a scholarship so that you're not behind the eight ball from the beginning. You've gotta be clear and you've gotta be um, real about what your economic prospects are after you go to law school and make sure that you don't hamper yourself with substantial debt that you can never pay off. Thank you. And last question, what would you say to the young black women today? I would say that the opportunities you have now are tremendous. And if you will focus on preparing yourself to take advantage of them, your career is a long journey. Don't take yourself out of the game. Always make sure that you show up ready to meet whatever the task is and be fearless. You know, like when you asked me the question about what was the most difficult thing on the Supreme Court, ladies, nothing we do now is difficult. There are people whose names we will never know that clean toilets, who were raped, who couldn't raise their children without the system taking them away, who were with drug addicted parents, I mean, who never felt safe a day in their life. Nothing that we do professionally compares to that. So whenever you feel like you don't have strength, you think about the people that came before us and you gird yourself up and you get out there and you start competing. Don't let anybody tell you don't belong. Don't let anybody tell you you're not the right fit for this or that. You go out there and you show them you have what it takes. And maybe not with this organization or with this person, but you can make a successful career on your terms. You just got to believe in you. And remember, life is 90% showing up. 10% is the aptitude. You got that. Just always think about the opportunities you have because of the people who came before you. Don't ever forget that. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. This was such an amazing interview. I know you're such a busy woman, but thank you for taking 30 minutes out of your day to not only have a conversation with me, but to just really just spread your wisdom. Like I said, this is for my podcast called Uplifting with Liv. You already have like the link to the website, so I'll mm -hmm. send everything over to you. So thank, thank you, you again, and you have a great rest of your day. You too, Olivia. Take good care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.